This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide updates or changes. All right, welcome to the Sherman Show. I am Jeff Sherman here with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we are recording on Monday, May 22nd, 2023. Sam is proud of me because I remember to say it up front for the first time in many episodes. So thanks, Sam. I'm trying to make you proud. All and right. today we have a special guest. We have Vincent Delar. Vincent is a global macro strategist at StoneX, and he authors many weekly research reports talking about the global macro trends. He advises pension funds on asset allocation. And so uh, what we really want to do is just delve into it and see where we are sitting here as we're getting ready to wind up the fifth month of 2023. So Vincent, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Well, Vincent, um, you know, most of our listeners out there who are familiar with a lot of your work know you as one of the guys who really got that inflation call right a couple of years back. And so just on that front, you know, maybe you could tell our listeners who you are, what's your background, how you got into uh, becoming a strategist, and more importantly, too, um, you know, again, uh, what people should know about your responsibilities at StoneX. Wonderful. So, yeah, I'm the, the global macro strategist for uh, StoneX, which is a uh, Fortune 100. Um, I work for the broker deal division. Um, we do a lot of uh, Currencies, commodities, securities. Um, I have a really fun job. You know, I I I chose the name Global Macro because it means nothing. Uh, it means I get to talk about whatever I want because anything is global or macro. Um, and um, yeah, I write uh, weekly reports uh, that go mostly to institutional investors around the world. Uh, I work a lot with Latin America, uh, Brazil, Chile. The pension funds there are big. Um, do roadshows, media, um, and I try to think of ideas that either the market is not perceiving or that are not being connected. I, I feel like inflation was one of these where you could kind of see all the signs. Uh, you just need to start in early 20, and you could see that we we're going to have this inflation, uh, and, and, and the market was resisting this idea. So this is where I think you get your, your biggest alpha is, is when you have a high conviction core. Uh, a lot of supporting evidence. I like quantities. I like historical analysis. Uh, and and then, you know, of course, it's hard with markets, right? Because sometimes things will go against you, but you need to have conviction in, in, in your thesis, uh, back it out. Um, and that's it. So how I got there, um, I grew up in France. I was meant to be a um, I don't know, diplomat or high level, high level civil servant, which is what what you do when you have good grades in France. I, I thought that was really not my thing. I always had an interest. I, initially in, in, in currencies, I, I collected banknotes as a kid. I, I loved uh, the, the images, what they told. I, I've always been fascinated with, 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 with FX and currencies. Uh, but that's not something that is really rewarding in France. So I, I got lucky enough, got a scholarship to study in the US. And then um, I worked in research, research now for about 15, 20 years. Uh, I teach at a local college here in, in California. And um, yeah, I, I feel blessed. I mean, we, we are in a very interesting industry. Like, you know, we, we get to address a lot of problems, learn about a lot of new topics every day. And there's, there's always something going on. So let me, uh, before we even jump into it. So you said you like to collect banknotes too. Um, you know, I have someone uh, that that is one and I, I always say she collects money. Um, but the thing is, how many different ones do you have? What what does your collection look like? Uh, I'd have to go back to my child childhood room in, in Dijon, Burgundy, France. But uh, you know, I would travel a lot with my parents, and everywhere I go, uh, I would you know get try to get every banknote, every coin, and then I would you know glue them. And th that's one of the reasons, by the way, why, why I hated the introduction of the euro. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like we, we, we used to have in, in Europe, all the, 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 the foreign, the peseta, the, the lira, the, the drachma, and, and each of these little coins 
told you something about the, the culture and the history. And, and then we, 1999, you know, we launched a Euro. We couldn't even agree on, on a symbol that, that to me, that, that is a, an illustration of the, of the failure of the European Union as a concept is that you can't even get people to agree on what you're going to put on the note. So we went with like stupid bridges, you know, because everybody loves bridges, right? So, uh, but um, yeah. Well, it's interesting too, when you're talking about the uh, the history behind that, I used to do that as well. When you travel, just take a look and, you know, you, you get the currency, the, the hard currency, and you, you just look at the physical, no other coin, and just start trying to figure out who the individual was on there, what the building or whatever the background might be. And back then you'd have to pull up maybe an encyclopedia or, you know, some other research, you'd have to go to the library and take a look. But one thing that just struck me as well, just uh, that aspect too, is passports. You don't really get, you don't get that physical stamp in most of the countries that you travel through nowadays as well. I used to like to collect uh, the stamps on, or, you know, hold my old passports and just take a look and revisit the the stamps that you would see, but now it's all digital. So for the most part, so that's another thing that's going well, on. That just shows you, you travel to fancy places, Sam. Uh, you know, m- most countries actually aren't digital. It's only when you're in certain ones. And so um, I actually got stamped out of Sam Pancras a week ago. Uh, so on the train, they still they still give you the physical stamp on the way out. You know, it's that foo-foo uh, Heathrow you're using, you know, right. instead of... Uh, you know, speaking of passport in Europe, that was a, in, in, in England, that was a theme in, in, in the Brexit vote. You know, it was decided by, by a very small margin, right? And a lot of, at, at least some of the people resented the fact that they had the European Union um, harmonize all the passports and, and right. the British, I can't remember the color, I think it was blue, right? They had this blue passport and they had to change to dark, dark reddish. And then there was a level of resentment. It's, it, it probably was enough to, to make the difference. You know, there's probably enough people who voted solely based on that. And, and this kind of momentous change in the, in the United Kingdom's history. So these symbols, they, they matter. I mean, this is what you know, the essence of a nation. Why do we accept, you know, colorful pieces of paper as, you know, oh, here, give, give me some goods, give me your time. Here's a colorful piece of paper. Or why do we, you know, put some of our identity in that little record that the, the passport is? It's, uh, um, I think there's something deeper than, than you know, just, just. You know, well, you mentioned that too. And uh, like the reason I brought up this whole banknote thing is I was flipping through it the other day because uh, my wife was looking at it and just, you know, trying to put some stuff in there. And um, uh, we're just noticing how just, you know, uh, unimaginative the U.S. is, right? You know, even if we've evolved them and now they have, you know, a couple of different colors on there, but you see all these like high tech, like these clear, like plastic, like, and just the symbols. And I mean, and watching the evolution of different notes over time, I just, I, I find it to be amazing. So um, anyway, um, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, interesting. That was your, your first foray into FX um, there, but you know, you talk about, you know, having calls that are maybe non-consensus or things that you have high conviction in that, that others aren't seeing, you know, kind of what aren't others seeing today right now? Uh, we all know about, you know, the the call of pretty much everywhere is recession, 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 right. recession, right? That's it. Uh, but what are you seeing that, that potentially others aren't picking up and you think is is really top of mind for today? That would be that would be the recession thing. I mean, everybody's obsessed with this. I mean, the recession is should have been already there yesterday and the day before yesterday, right? I mean, if if you look at the the yield curve, or if you look at you know in, in traditional economist expectations, we've been talking about oh, like the the Fed is going to hike and break things, and you know people thought it's going to happen at two percent, three percent. Well, you know, here we are. We're at we're at five percent, uh, and, and my. Kind of strongest out of consensus conviction call is that we're not going to get a recession. That this this banking crisis is it's a rich man's crisis at the end of the day. Like I, you know, who banked at Silicon Valley Bank? Who has a a private banker at Credit Suisse who you know um, manages their their high net worth for them? Um, even this debt ceiling stuff. I mean, all the issues that seem to consume uh, the financial media. If you really dig beyond this, it, like, well, you know, yeah, it's. Um, it doesn't impact that many people. Um, my view is the economy is, is, has been stronger than people have thought for a very long time. Uh, consumption is still extraordinarily resilient. Uh, we haven't run through these excess savings from, from COVID yet. Uh, and we have the tailwind of extraordinarily high uh, fiscal spending, both at the federal level. I mean, you look, you know, we, we run a 700 billion deficit in the first three months of the year. Like, 
Whoa, you know, you, you need at least a year to do that. Like now we can do that in three years, in three months. If you just and 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 then the state level, maybe I'll get into that later. I think that's 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 the big one that people are missing is how much money states. You know, wasn't have. it wasn't everybody up in arms when Obama had that you know one trillion dollar year, right? It was a yeah. one trillion deficit, and it was like, oh, this is we're ruining the country. And now, you know, like you said, it, we're running through that every four months. Yeah, yeah. and I'm I'm um I'm a Canadian guy, you know, like I, I think we kind of forgot. You know, because of the, um, the ideological uh, the ideological shift in the eighties, uh, and 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 then the the the, the, to the focus on monetary policy for forty years. Basically, we've kind of outsourced economic management to central bank. Right? It was the the maestro Greenspan. Right? I mean, fix it for us, please. And monetary policy is kind of lame. Uh, you know, we, we we've done it for ten years. Uh, you know, trying to boost the economy by by you know buying bombs, you know, and doing QE and getting rates to zero, we got nowhere. Uh, on the other hand, you know, when the government does spend money, that is real money that gets spent in the economy and gets your fiscal multiplier, especially if you give that money to poor people, which is what COVID did kind of on accident. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that, that reversed a 40-year trend where we took money from the poor to give it to the rich. Um, COVID kind of, you know, did that proper Robin Hood thing. And, yeah. and yeah, it works. It works. I mean, it, and it comes with um, side effects that are not pleasant, like inflation. But if your goal is to boost nominal growth, spend a bunch of money, give money to people, and you'll see it come back. Yeah, you, you mentioned that the banking crisis was a rich person's problem. And I, I kind of think about that about QE as well. QE really just really did help the asset owners, right? The people who are risk takers, you know, uh, the ability to borrow money very cheaply, which, as you said, uh, the the lower income and economic strata doesn't get to participate in that. And so maybe dig deeper onto this and explain why you feel that having this, you know, kind of fiscal money multiplier, having some level of inflation is accretive to the overall economy. Yeah, just to bounce back on your QE idea, right? The, 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 the term, the economic transmission mechanism is called the wealth effect. Yep. I mean, it's in the word, the wealth effect. <laughs> Who benefits from the wealth effect? The wealthy. I mean, that's like the fact that this did not get called out when, when Bern Bernanke had his famous speech in, I think, 2010, basically said, well, if the, if the stock market goes up, then everything is going to be good because the, the rich people, I mean, it's like trickle-down economics, but even worse, because trickle-down economics, at least there was some level of um, entrepreneur, like, okay, we're going to boost business creation and we're gonna you know free uh john gold basically like there, there was a there was an idea there was a mechanism through which you know giving money to rich people would, would create economic growth with a wealthy thing it's just like no we're just gonna give a bunch of money to people who already own assets and hopefully they'll spend that money and eventually the economy will grow out of it um so yeah i think this was you know bogus economic theory and and that that cost us 10 years of, of subpar growth um and now we have uh we kind of, I would argue, sleepwalked into Keynesianism, right? I don't think that was the plan. I mean, it was for Trump. I think when when Trump was elected, he kind of had this, you know, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run it hard. But but then, you know, as interest rates picked up, then we ran into these liquidity issues. We had the repo market freeze. So what you need is both the fiscal stimulus to boost growth and also a tremendous injection of liquidity so that the private sector could deleverage. Because one one of the problems is, you know, when you try to boost growth with with um, Keynesian stimulus. Japan has done that, tried that 20 times in the past 40 years. When your private sector agents are highly leveraged, that doesn't work, right? Because eventually interest rates start to rise and you see start, banks start to pop up and you have issues. So you need both a one-time shot in the arm of massive liquidity, and then you get the stimulus on, and then you can reset at a higher path for growth rates and inflation, which is where I believe we are. So with that, you know, one of the things that you, you talked about earlier is you mentioned just the fixation by the media on certain topics and the topic de jour also, you know, beyond inflation. Inflation was kind of, as you mentioned earlier, the, a bit of last year's topic. You know, what seems to be here and now right now is just the, the fixation on this X date and the debt ceiling. And part of it, you know, entails what we've been talking about, some of the fiscal stimulus in there. I guess my question isn't really about, you know, this estimated date of the X date, but this is almost a merrier go around, right? We've, especially since 2010, it seems like it's occurring with more frequency where we do hit up this, this uh, debt limit uh, based on the ceiling. I guess my question is, is there a way 
out of this, this fiscal, uh, if you want to call it imprudence in terms of not being able to run a balanced uh, budget. And also, you know, just the debt ceiling itself, since it's hitting up all the time, you know, a lot of people throw out the, the notion of eliminating it completely. I guess, where do you stand on this idea of elimination of the debt ceiling? Um, can we eliminate it entirely? Or do we just start to think about whittling it down, perhaps by thinking about balancing a budget and having an annual surplus instead of a deficit? I, I would be against the the idea of balancing the budget. I, I don't think the budget needs to be balanced. I mean, let, 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 let's go back to, you know, me collecting coins in 10-year-old me, you know, getting Deutsche marks and keeping them in my book. Someone needs to issue these little coins. At some point, there needs to be an injection of money in the system that is not offset by production. I mean, public sector accounting is fundamentally different than private sector accounting. Yes, I need to balance my books because I don't have a money printer at home. Corporations need to, states, local governments, they do. The rules do not apply to governments. I mean, I, this is kind of the idea that we were talking about earlier. Like, why do we accept, you know, these little pieces of paper as, as that's seniorage. This is kind of the, this is the oldest, definition of, of sovereignty is you have to accept my debt to settle your private transactions. Whoever gets to make that claim created a resource, a resource that he can use to build palaces for himself, that he can use to invade his neighbors, or maybe that he can use to form his government and, and, and build a good healthcare system. But that resource exists. And I think it's a, it's a major flaw in economic traditional economic theory that where we, we ignore it, right? We, 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 we have this, the, 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 the money veil, the, 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 the money's neutral, right? It's just like a, a unit of account, but what we're changing is it's just goods and services. And, and, you know, money is just a convention that we use to, to settle that transaction. No, there is this ghost in the system, which is the free issuance of money by the government that you can use. Now, of course, it's not infinite. The only limit, and di different different countries have different limits. I would argue the limit for the U.S. is very high because we have the world reserve currency. So there's a hot, lot of demand for a currency, right? If you issue the Argentine peso, I mean, you already have trouble convincing your citizen to just hold your peso because they, but the dollar, no, you can issue the limit to that issuance, the limit to the amount of deficits we can have is inflation. And we've, we've hit that limit. Like, I'm, I'm not arguing that we should just, you know, spend the way like Venezuela or Argentina does. Uh, but the notion that, you know, we need to balance the book is wrong. At the end of the day, it's a trade-off. Like, how do we want to finance the government? And do we consider that a certain level of inflation is an acceptable way of financing the government? And I would argue that it is. Past, of course, I'm not arguing for like 7 8 plus percent inflation. Like, that that becomes problematic. But 3 4% inflation, if you have a highly indebted society, if you have a very a lot of difficulty raising taxes, it's a choice. Inflation is, a, at the end of the day, everything is about transfers. And inflation is a transfer from, I would argue, the asset owner to the workers. And I, I, I believe that after 40 years of transferring wealth from wor the workers, the poor, and the young to the rich, the old, uh, and the retired, uh, we could have a little bit of it flowing backwards. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because one of the big concepts in economics is the the fight between capital and labor, right? right. I mean, that, that's really what we talk about, like in various cycles. And you know, you've seen labor have an upper hand uh, post pandemic. Right. Some of it is because of, of the metrics you you've mentioned, but also we've had somewhat of a shortage of labor in this country, right? We lost, you know, we lost people just yes. to fortunate death, but also we lost some immigration as well, yes. and so. You know, you mentioned this idea of, you know, three and four percent inflation being somewhat acceptable. Um, you know, it's so funny to me. I've always joked that why is price stability two percent inflation to yes. be price stability zero? But, you know, yes. obviously they want deflation because then you get, you know, in this supposed spiral. So we've agreed on two. So why is three OK? Why is four OK? And where are the academics wrong right. on this concept of two? Okay, first of all, the, the concept of two, I mean, is not, I mean, if you want to go by the book and there, I'd, I'd be right there with the libertarian hard money time guy, price stability means zero. I mean, it's a joke, right? That, that the 2%, I, so what, how the Fed now defines price stability is a stable rate of inflation, which I think Friedman, one observed, well, if we had 10%, 10,000% inflation every month, 
but steady. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, jump, jump well done, guys. Yeah. So yeah, it's no, a I, I, I don't really, I, I could say like, yeah, to help our debt. Uh, yes. But, well, now, buy anything so that would be my point but the the two percent thing they made it up how did they make it up by the way um an 80s press conference in new zealand uh they had a problem i think it had to do with the common market or whatever like inflation problem in new zealand they get some uh rbnz uh got economist on on tv and then the journalist well what's a good level of inflation the guy's like two percent why not too high not too low that's it that is all the science that there is behind the two percent target um i would argue that um you know people talk about ad nauseum about the r star the neutral rate of interest rates it is neither accommodative or whatever like i mean it's, it's kind of a, a bs concept that people use to write academic papers and get jobs at the fed no, that's uh, one of the reasons he's still in charge of the New York Fed, right? He's the R-star guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I would argue there is another important concept, which is I-star. The, the optimal level of inflation that a society needs at any given point. I would argue this I-star kind of changes over time, uh, depending on demography, depending on growth, depending on debt levels. And, you know, for the past four years, I would say, yeah, I-star was pretty low because we had all these boomers coming in the labor market, aging, having lots of savings. We had a lot of foreign savings, a lot of savings out of Europe, out of Japan, out of China, out of commodity producers, where the huge shock of China's entering the WTO. Uh, so yeah, prices, you know, naturally were either falling or at least not accelerating. So it was totally okay to have a low inflation rate. I think now we are in a different world. And you mentioned these labor shortages. And, you know, they're mostly demographic, right? I mean, we have basically two boomers that are retiring for every Gen Z that's entering the market. Uh, of course, it's going to put pressure on wages by definition. I mean, unless we accept like a tremendous amount of immigration, which we're not willing to do, it's it's math. I mean, so yeah, we can keep hammering it, we can keep fighting it. I, I guess if we like, you know, throw the economy into a deep depression, we'll get to 2%. But why? Instead, we just accept well, that that is the way it is. You have two guys who are returning for one is coming in. The guy who's coming in is going to ask for more money. Because he has to work more, because collectively the young generation has to bear the burden of basically paying into the pensions for the boomers who are retiring. So we need wages to go up and with asset prices to go down. That is healthy. So your I star is probably around three, four percent. The other reason, the other way you can take, justify that I star is with a fiscal lens. Um, so if you, if you're into you know public, it's not public, it's like a basic math, really, you know. Over time, you want to, your debt to GDP ratio to be more or less stable. Public debt to GDP. Otherwise, you know, you end up in in the path of Greece, Argentina. Debt keeps going up, and then you have to service that debt. Eventually, you will go broke. So, you want to stabilize that debt to GDP ratio. Now, what does that mean? Is that the new debt, which is a deficit, needs to grow at the same time as the numerator, the denominator. So, numerator is a deficit. Denominator, if you look at the change, denominator is a kind of nominal growth. So. If you are in a world where your deficit on average is, is 3 4%, which is where we're in the 2010s, you can get there with 1.5% growth, 2% inflation. Your nominal growth is 3.5-4%. Your deficit is 3.5-4%. You, you remain stable debt to GDP. My impression is that we've moved to a new world. We're talking about that 700 billion deficit in three months. Like right now, we have full employment and the, de the, the deficit is around 6.5% of GDP. So we need to have your nominal GDP grow by six and a half. Now, are we going to have real growth of six and a half percent in the U.S.? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> this is going to be like around two percent trend growth. That's two percent a good year. Huh? So yeah. you need to make up that gap with inflation. Um, and again, four percent inflation, two percent real growth gets you to that six percent. You can run a big deficits. You can pay the boomers the pension. You can keep paying for whatever foreign war you want to get into it. Uh, and um, you know, it's it's a new normal. Yeah, well, this all reminds me of where we were kind of prior to the whole like QE infinity type of world was that there was this concept of nominal GDP targeting, right? right? In, G in GDP yeah. targeting is what it was called. And when I listen to you talk, I'm just reminded of it, right? That, you know, we, we can't always, can, you know, we can't really change this real growth mechanism, right. but we can affect somewhat is the nominal GDP side. And, you know, we kind of have said it tongue in cheek at Double Line that 
you know, we thought maybe when the Fed introduced this whole concept of average inflation targeting, right. the goal was to be a nominal GDP targeter and let the upper end of the bound move up a little bit, get to three or four percent. Do you think that the Fed has has really kind of, you know, they have the egg in their face because of that. they wanted the three to four. We got the nine handle at one point. You know, it looks like we're going back into at least right. a low four this year. Um, do you think they still have the ability to kind of think about that? Or do you think they've been so shell-shocked by what they saw and experienced roughly 18 months ago that they're just going to struggle to really change that mindset? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think there's an aspect of they messed up. You know, like that's, and that that that's that's not helpful. Like they messed up in 20, like, I'm not talking about COVID, like we didn't know what it was. And yeah, in hindsight, we overreacted on a bunch of stuff, but you know, at the time it was scary, but like November, 2021, these guys were still buying mortgage-backed securities. <laughs> what the, what are you thinking? You know, wait, we, wait. we had like, you know, house prices up. Me too. March of 2021. Yeah, yeah, I got the, I got the, yes, that's how insane this was. December, right? I mean, like you, you had like real estate prices up by like 50%. Miami condos were up by 200%. I mean, you had people like, what are you thinking? You know, like that was insane. Like I'm not questioning like monetizing the deficit early on and then pouring like when you had the fire. Yeah, you just, you get, grab the biggest hose you can and you, that's what they did. But like why they kept the hose flowing that that's, and that contributing for sure. Like the explosion in M2, like you see on the chart, like, Yes, I my my base case is that inflation would have been is kind of right trend rising, right? It, it was two percent before COVID. It was going to slowly raise to like three, four, five, which is kind of where I see my eye star. It would have done that naturally. Um, now the Fed had you know Fed plus COVID plus lockdown plus Russia, all of that got us to nine percent. So. Uh, yeah, now that kind of creates a credibility problem for the Fed, right? Because if they had done the right thing, it would have been progressive, would have naturally gently resettled in that new world. Uh, instead, now they, they need to look tough, right? So I, I think that's kind of where we are now, where, um, you know, if I could read the, the heart and the soul of Powell, I think he's pretty happy with the way things are. You know what? He got the Fed funds rate to 5%. Inflation is falling to 5%. He got the positive real rate. I mean, he he wants to say job done, mission accomplished. And then, you know, kind of like George W. after invading Iraq, you know, like can't find WMD there. The war's going horrible. You just get into a, a big, big warship and you, mission accomplished. <laughs> uh, I think that that's, that's what he wants to do. Now, he can't do that, right? Because the memory of the mess up is, but I don't think he has the drive and nor should he really to try to go back to 2%. I, you know, so, I mean, he needs to keep talking out, which is why you saw like the, um, you know, Ballard last week and, you know, a couple of fat guys go on TV say, okay, we can do one, maybe two, maybe three rate more hikes, and, you know, just, just to kind of talk tough, but I, th I think he's done. Yeah, I, I do too. Um, let me just ask one more thing, because I know Sam Sam works on our asset allocation stuff, so he wants free asset allocation advice as usual. So before he gets into that, because uh, I know that's where he's going, I can see him sitting there. Uh, I want to ask you too, just as you think about looking at the economic data set, what gives you confidence that you know things are somewhat different this time? And you you brought up M2. It made me think about you know aggregate monetary growth being low. We've seen velocity go down. Uh, we have leading economic indicators are bad. The yield curve's inverted. Um, the labor market's strong. But what gives you confidence that we can avert this recession in, in 2023? And what are you looking at that really instills that confidence today? Yeah. So first of all, there's a bunch of flaws, I think, in, the, in some of the measures you, you mentioned. So the, the circular aspect to it. So the, okay, the leading in economic indicator, what's in there? The yield curve and the stock, I mean, and then the stock market, which in itself is already discounting or depressed. So it's like the, the, the snake eating its own tail, right? And and these things like, and yield curve has been invent, inverted for a while now, like that if, if you go by the, I mean, then people do all these measures. Well, no, you need to get a three months or the 15 year. No, the yield curve has been inverted for 16 months. We haven't had the recession. Um, so, and then I'm, I'm not sure that the- um, Is that potentially like a dynamic of the market participants too? That's one thing yes. I wonder 
is it that a bunch of people that are invested in the market haven't seen an, an era of inflation or haven't seen a yes. four or five yes. handle, right? And so it's like, oh, this is going to derail things. Yes. Decide, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I started, you know, quant, my career as a quant. And one thing you need to know with models, models always want to refer to the mean. You know, it's, you feed them historical data and it's, it was going to tell you. It, and and you see that if you look at um, the swap market inflation expectation at any given point, even though I was going up to 2%, the swap market thing, no, no, it's going to be down to two. It's going to be down to two. That's what models do uh, until they reset, right? Until like you keep being surprised enough and then you realize, oh, oh actually my mean was wrong. I'm going to reset to that higher mean. So there, there's this kind of adaptive expectation, if you will, mechanism, which... And I mean, the same was true the other way down, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the 80s. I mean, people were worried about inflation, even though it was deflating very clearly. It made a killing with long-term bonds in the early 80s, yeah. right? The, the, there was a huge term premium baked in. That was the long memory of the inflationary 70s. I mean, re remember when, you know, Clinton had his budget and uh, um, I think it was Carville who said, uh, if, if I could be someone, I'd be the, the bond market because I, I could scare anybody. You know that, that the bond market vigilante. Like, this mean ninety. Yeah. That great New Orleans thick, you know, French quasi, you know, Creole. Yes. Boy, right? Yeah, I, I can't. I can't do it. But you know what I'm saying. Like, this is the mid nineties. This is the biggest economic boom. Uh, growth is great. The budget is soon gonna be in surplus. China is gonna join WTO. The great moderation, and still at the time, you know, people were worrying about inflation from fifteen years ago. So I think we are in the same camp here with, you know, the market pricing uh, out a recession. And I think that's where the recession thing comes from because the, you know, you, you feel, oh, like it's, you want inflation to come down. What's the fastest way to get that? It would be to have a recession. And I think that's why you get all these kind of bets for a recession, which, which you know, we're self-defeating, right? Because it ensures that rates stay low at the long end. So because rates are so low at the long end, companies can lever up. We still have negative real rate, right? For, for a lot of companies, like the top line is growing by eight, 9%, which is nominal growth right now. And they get, they get to borrow at four. So we don't have restrictive monetary policy. Like for, I'd be a lot more worried about a recession when actually we see a steeper yield curve. Right. But because you have that, four, but the weighted average cost of capital is significantly lower. Four is only if you're going to market today. Yes. Right? You think yes. about, you know, when you look through the balance sheet, it's more levered than, than even you see there. So- you know, that's always the, you know, what I thought about during the transmission mechanism, you know, of the Fed is that we haven't seen anything yet. And then, you know, we kind of see this banking issue. Um, and so tell me, lastly, why you don't feel that this banking dilemma is a problem. I, I know I said Sam could ask the next one, but I, I just can't ever resist. So, um, you know, feel free. Yeah, I mean, I think it's serious. Don't. um you know, I think we'll, we'll see more more banks failing for sure. But listen, we, we have a long history of bank failures in this country. We have the FDIC. Uh, we have a resolution mechanism. The banks that are failing are not systematically important. They were, you know, SVB took money from VCs. I mean, boo-boo, I'm going to call them VC, First Republic Bank. It was like private. And anyway, everybody's going to get their money back, right? I mean, we've, we insured the deposits anyway. And then... The, I think they were just going to concentrate the banking sector. You know, JP Morgan's going to take them all over. Uh, yeah, we'll have a three bank banking sector, um, basically administered by a mix of the Fed and the largest banks. But when it comes to, um, you know, credit creation, and um, I'd be a lot more worried. I mean, it's going to slow for sure, but it was slowing anyway before. I, uh, and, you know, in I'd be more worried in Europe where you see banks are credit in Europe. In the U.S., it's about only a third. Right? We have very vibrant capital markets, a lot of private lending. Uh, we have vibrant stock market as well. You can you can issue you can raise money there, and and you have all these pools of money. Like you look at private equity, they're, they're sitting on two point five trillion cash. So yeah, I live in San Francisco. I, I can see the empty buildings and, and the way downtown looks. That's not pretty at all. But I also know that you have a lot of people with a lot of cash that will eventually can take over and will be surprised by the, the the ease of course price has to adjust that but that's a healthy thing again that is a healthy thing like you need to reprice assets you know change the purpose um we need to let the market it's just the market doing its thing at the end of the day we shouldn't be afraid of it all right give a pause there just in case Sherman wanted to jump in again and take away the uh 
take away. Okay, so on that note, uh, no, I fully agree. <laughs> Let's let capitalism work, and that's what we haven't seen for a while. But again, no one likes it because uh, you have losses, and you have to be more prudent in risk management. So anyway, Sam, take it away. Go for All it. All right. Uh, so Sherm teed it up with uh, some free advice on asset allocation. So let's stick to that, change gears to that theme, I should say. What do you like today? How are you positioning for your uh, your asset allocation type, uh, your advice on asset allocation? I guess, you know, since we're, uh, we have a lean towards fixed income, why own anything other than T-bills today for your fixed income portfolio too, right? I mean, I'm seeing here five uh, high fives, even depending on where you're at. If you want yeah. to dance around the X date. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do that. Pick up yeah. that. Pick up this extra 20 bips or whatever. Yeah. No, that, that would be. Remember that, that extra, you know, those extra bips are only a tick in trading. So it looks good on the screen, but uh, <laughs> when you actually try to make the money on it, unless you're throwing billions at it, that tick doesn't matter much, you know. I unfortunately uh, bond stuff. Sorry, sorry. I, I buy my bonds on Treasury Direct. So I, you know, I get the auction and I, I'm not, I, unfortunately, I'm not. I can't move the treasury market with my 401k. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, uh, no, I, of course I love cash. Of course I do. Uh, you know, we have positive real rates for the first time in, I don't know, like 10 years. Uh, and I, I, I think the, um, and I, you want to stay at the front end of the curve, right? Because I, if I'm right, the Fed is, it's just going to hold there. But the hold there for much longer than the market prices. The market price is forecast by the end of the year. That, to me, is the biggest mispricing. And then and, and the way you make money, you can actively make money by by, by, by selling you know, uh, interest rate futures or taking a position in your dollars, something like swaps. Uh, but you know, if you're just kind of a retail guy, yeah, you just stick at the front end, you compound at five, five and a half, and and that's good. And because if if I'm right, and 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 you know the curve needs to be priced at some point for these imaginary cuts that have been in the curve for many time, many years now, um, everything's gonna get a hit. So that that's why I'm kind of bearish on. Even though I'm very somewhat more bullish consensus on the economy, I'm I'm somewhat bearish on on the stock market. I, I think we shouldn't be at twenty times earnings. Like when you have the Fed funds rate at five percent, and even as an economic board, I acknowledge the economy is slowing, right? And we already had two quarters of declining earnings. I think there's going to be two more. Uh, your EPS, you know, target EPS is probably around 200. I mean, slap a maybe 16 multiple on that. That's 3,200. I mean, I, I don't get to 4,000 with that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, not the most exciting call. Um, I think you can find, um, if you're willing to go abroad, especially on fixed income, like go to Latin America. Um, Brazil, you can get, you know, 13% short-term rates there. Inflation is 6% foreign. You get 7% real yield in Brazil. Uh, Mexico is about the same. Uh, so there you can actually find, um, and maybe you can go a bit further in the curve there because indeed you will see cuts here. I'm not so sure we'll see cuts in the US. Like if you want to pivot, maybe go to Latin America. That's on the fixed income side. Um, on the equities. You do, local, you do local currency as well on that? Yeah. Or you oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, of yeah. Course. oh yeah, local currency. Yeah, I mean, because that, that, that's why you get, I mean, if you buy dollar bonds, you don't get the, right. I mean, you right. get a spread over it, but you don't get the big 13, right? So, um, and again, because I'm somewhat bullish on global growth, I mean, a lot of around the EM is that they leverage bets on global growth, right? So when, when things go well, they, they boom, and then it's a boom and bust, right? Um, I think people are pricing a, a global bust when more likely, I mean, I look at the world, I see China is reopening, I see Europe is not falling off the cliff like people thought. I see the U.S. has all these economic surprise indices. So that should benefit, I think, emerging markets next year. Uh, the fact that, you know, it's it's kind of the, I've heard the, the dollar smile, right? The dollar is strong when things are really bad or when things are really good. I think we're in the middle. Yeah. Uh, and when you're in the middle, you want to be, especially when you have these very high carry, uh, that's when emerging markets tend to thrive. Um, equity space, obviously, because of my pro-growth bias, I like value. Uh, I like cyclical. Some of them have been completely hammered. Uh, but I, I think you'll have time to buy stocks 15, 20% cheaper in three months. That is my guess. Okay. Um, what about the uh, the other part that, that does have some of that pro-cyclical, and it's the commodity market? What, uh, Stonex known for commodities, too. What do you like there? What don't you like? Yeah, it's it's been difficult for me. I'm I'm say I've been wrong on that. I I I thought commodities would perform a lot better than they have. Um, you know, I thought oil would. You know, you had this kind of perfect storm. Um, I think it boils down to China reopening not being as 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 sharp as people thought. 
Uh, my inclination is that it's it's just a matter of time. Maybe people. Do you think that's a delay? That it's yeah. just the same. Thing yeah, it's happening, but more slowly. Like people just start boom, it will. And then the thing is about commodities. When we remember, commodities need to be consumed, right? I mean, oil is a toxic substance. You, you don't store oil in the garden, right? Or you don't, uh, you know, you don't get iron ore delivered to your front lawn. So. Commodities do not discount the future, right? We tried, so, we tried to do oil arbitrage last year with the negative, or two years ago, the negative price. Three years ago, yes, now, sorry. Uh, but he did do that. And so he, he didn't even think about the effects of the toxicity. Yeah. The yeah. So, on my mind. so the point is like, I, I think as a, as a global macro guy, I tend to have this, you know, uh, forecasting bias. Like a, I'm always looking at the next six, 12 months. Commodities, what matters for commodities is what's ha what is happening now. And what's happening now is you got Russian oil, oil leaking out of Russia, being sold, you know, in various ways by, you know, India, Turkey, whatever, Iranian outputs coming back on. And, and that Chinese demand is not coming back online as fast as people think. So oil prices have been, you know, in that kind of boring range for a long time. I still think over time, and not just for oil, but for a lot of commodities, you look at things like copper, you can think like lithium, uh, you know, you look at the the, the the forecasted demand because of the demands for um, electrification and, and renewable versus the available supply. It's almost mathematically certain that we, we're going to see another commodity super cycle, uh, whether it starts now or in six months, I, I don't know. But um, I think over, over the long term, and also if I'm right on the inflation call, um commodities will have a role to play in your portfolio as diversification if, if i'm right the biggest risk to portfolio is going to be inflation and you don't hedge inflation with bonds you hedge inflation with commodities so that's why i think you get that you know you have a traditional asset allocation portfolio you know it's whatever like 60 40 right maybe that's going to be like 60 uh 2020 or something the the new tool less 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 fixed income and, and more commodities all right, I'll, I'll take a 60, 30, 10, but you know, I'm with you. I, I think so, just because on a vol, it, it really does. Yes. You, you don't need a lot of times, so it, it can really help drive. Um, let me just ask one last question before we get to Sam's favorite part of the show. And, you know, one thing you, you talk about a lot is risk management. What What is one risk that you think people are taking too much of today? And I, the obvious answer tends to be the stock market in the US, but what do you think is one of those risks out there that you know people either have too much exposure to or are completely ignoring today? Duration. I think every portfolio is too duration heavy. Even bond indices, right? I mean, if you look at the, the duration of the, the Barclays lag, and, and it's just people responding to incentive, right? I mean, because we had these flat on very yield curves, companies have been, I mean, I would have done the same, right? I mean, if I can borrow for 10 years cheaper than five, of course I will. Uh, so, so the duration has extended, and, and people have way too much duration in the portfolio. Even the stock market itself has has a lot more duration than unusual because of the weight of you know the the, the magnificence, the the five companies that are like thirty five percent of the index, right? Highly valued growth stocks. So, I I think duration is, and I, I mean, if you believe like me that we're gonna have this kind of secular inflation, possibly some um, you know rising rates, geopolitical issues. Uh, you don't want to be in a portfolio whose value is dependent on things that may happen in twenty years. Like you want, you want tangible. All right, um, I think that's great, Vincent. Well, look, it, it's been a pleasure uh, having you on today. Um, one thing is too, how can our listeners, you know, get in touch with more of your thoughts, your research, your firm? What's the best way for them to do that? Well, the, the easiest way is to trade with us, StoneX. Um, you know, some of them may already do. Um, if you, you know, big on on, on futures, uh, commodities. Uh, if you do, call your StoneX rep and, and see if you can get on my list. Uh, the next easiest thing is Twitter. Um, I mean, Twitter is amazing. You know, I met some really smart people there. People are helpful. I, I try to be helpful as well. So my handle is at Vincent, V-I-N-C-E-N-T, Deluard. D-E-L-U-A-R-D. -E um, and then if you go under my pin tweet, there's a link where people can sign up uh, for my, my research. You can get, I think it's two months by default, but you know, DM me uh, if you want. I, I've heard you talk about that. You have a report. Like I said, I've benefited from a lot of people helping me out. Uh, so I, I try to share back. That's awesome. That's great. So, well, thank you for spending time with us today, Vincent. But as I promised, before we let you go, I have to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So, Sam? 
All right, Vincent, and that favorite part of the show, it is called Sherman Says. I'm going to offer a series of alternating unique prompts between you and Sherman to elicit a top of mind response. I'm going to kick it off of Sherman first so he can give you an example with money printer. Burr, right? I mean, Burr, that was the great, right, yeah. best memes of the last like uh, five years, right? But um, seems to be shut off a little bit these days. But uh, don't worry, as Vincent said, you can turn it on when you need to. That's right. Let's we keep the energy. Don't have to fall. You just go burr and you're you're you finish the job. Keep the power on, keep that printer going. So all right, over to you, Vincent, with passive bubble. Yes. I mean, <laughs> yes, I mean, I on this, I mean, I, I Mike Green, see, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, he's done some terrific work on on the impact of of passive. Uh, I recently wrote about target date phones and how their rebalancing pattern kind of match with what the stock market does. I think it's, I mean, it's happening for sure. It's putting upward pressure on valuations. It's having all sorts of impact, and and we don't talk about it. If anything, we institutionalize it, right? I mean, we basically have given you know a handful of really one company a monopoly on the retirement uh, savings of of. of all Americans with with this kind of target date fund uh, complex that that gets invested into um, index funds. So, um, yeah, look into it. He's a Sherman Show alumnus like yourself now, and so uh, we got a lot of respect for his work out there. I think he does great stuff out there, and uh, he's not like the broken clock. You know, he'll be right eventually. It's just that if you've seen these structures before, it happens, right? All right, back to you, Sherman, with rate hike. Pause. Yes. All right. Wage growth. It's for me? Yes, sir. Um, stronger than you think. Okay. And formal. We're stronger than you think, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like to use other people's answers for the next one, but um, I, I, I want to say it's one of the more powerful forces in markets. Um, because, you know, not only does it get the speculation going, but then also once you, you get this thing like the momentum, the passive indexing, right? And all of a sudden, then people have FOMO because they hear about others doing it and it just feeds on itself. So I think it's one of the more powerful forces out there. Indeed. All right. Back to you, Vincent, with leverage. Um, use carefully. Back to you, Sherman. Sure. It's one of the most powerful forces out there. <laughs> yeah. Most dangerous, potentially. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. right, uh, Sherman, down payment for residential mortgages. Do it. Um, I guess we don't have the piggyback loans as much. I think it, they exist somewhere, you know, out there. But um, I mean, from things we hear from our team and everything, it seems like 75 to 80 LTVs are the norm across the, the spectrum. So do it, have some skin in the game. And, um, do, you know, if you put down the ADL TV, you only get five times leverage, right? If you put down the 20%, you only get five X leverage. You don't need 10, right? Um, so anyway, um, you know, that that's that's all I got to say. You don't need 10, but how about this? So today, uh, the reason that prompted that, Sherman says, I saw today in the headlines, uh, a mortgage company, Rocket Mortgage, started offering 1% down mortgages. So it just reminded me a little bit back to the, to the 2000, the mid 2000s, early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, you can't even cover the closing cost, you know, on the transaction cost, right? Remember the friction that exists there too. Yeah, so, you know, and that's without it, mortgage insurance as well. But Rocket Mortgage is apparently, again, read the news, but uh, it's uh, they're going to cover two percent of it upfront too. The Rocket Mortgage is so it's pretty interesting to see that it's it's going back to those kinds of scenarios. Sounds there. like someone's hurting for origination is what it sounds right. like to me. Hey, so, I, I refire these guys. So um, I'm, whatever dumb stuff they're doing, I'm very happy to be adapted to them, you know? Let the creditors deal with it. I mean, if they want to like, you know, buy market share with aggressive pricing, That's let me right. be on the receiving end of it. That's right. I love it. Love it. All right, back to you, Vincent. With, uh, let's see here. Hopefully you're this one rings a bell, but uh, preference for the present. Preference for the present. 
Um, yeah, I, we're mortal. So yeah, I have a, you know, I have a preference for the present because uh, I will die one day. <laughs> okay. All right, Sherman, a trillion dollar coin. Actually, you know what? Let me change that. 30, let's call it $30 trillion coin, platinum edition. I'd like to have one of those because I'm going to die one day. So I'd like to have one sooner than later. Um, I mean, why not, right? I mean, if, if the Bernanke wanted to have the trillion to make it work, they did QE without it. Uh, it's all just accounting um, stuff. If you believe that that coin's worth 30 trillion, I'll sell it to you for 30 trillion. Well, don't try to sell me that Zimbabwe note that you got in your uh, wallet. There. It's 100 trillion. 100 and trillion. It's, Sorry. Still it's still on offer if you like it. All right. Uh, to close this out here, Vincent, uh, US consumer. Stronger than you think. And it has been all throughout the last six quarters, right? Where people thought we had a collapse last year. So, um, Vincent, thank you so much for spending time with us. I know our, uh, I know I enjoyed it. I hope our listeners did as well. Um, for those of you that are listening to this through your favorite podcast source, you can always see the videos of us. Sam and I put up some new graphics here uh, on the screen to uh, try to um, you know cover up the uh, the world behind us. Um, but also you can see us on the YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash double line capital, uh, where you can find this in our other videos. You can see uh, all the other stuff that we put out there as well. So Vincent, uh, thanks again for joining us again. For those of you who don't recall, it's Vincent Delar, Global Macro Strategist for StoneX. So thanks again. It's a fun. Thank you so much. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2023. DoubleLine Capital.